Let's rejoin the Israelites who are gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. They're standing behind the perimeter Moses has established to keep them safe. The mountain's trembling, lightning is flashing, the top of the mountain is engulfed in flames, the cloud of the Lord and a deep darkness have descended on the mountain. The Israelites can actually hear the voice of God thundering, and it scares them to death. The Israelites are basically in God's school, learning what it means to live with a fully present, all-powerful, fiercely loving God. They are learning what it means to be his treasured people. They're learning about the difference between being, quote, regular people and a nation of priests. Moses keeps asking them, are you sure you want to do this? And they keep saying, yes, we do. They stay here at the foot of Mount Sinai for a solid year. Deuteronomy is a recap of the previous books, so it's always a great place to go to get your bearings in the story. If you have a study Bible, like the one I've pictured here, this is the NIV study Bible, the notes at the bottom and the mid-margin references will point you to the corresponding passages in the other books. So you can start in Deuteronomy and then look to see where this passage is elsewhere and, and go check it out. So let's turn to Deuteronomy 6. It will tell us why God is teaching the Israelites these things. Deuteronomy 6 opens, as Moses says, These are the commandments the Lord told me to teach you, so that you, your children, and your grandchildren after them may be in awe of the Lord as long as you live, keeping all his decrees and commands so you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey, so it will go well with you, and you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Notice the whys. They're all huge blessings. This is God's goal with all of this. If you can't see the blessing in any given commandment, then you're looking at it wrong somehow. Make sure you're looking beyond the cultural context. Their culture is pretty barbaric, and that can distract us from the underlying purpose of a particular command. God meets them inside of their barbaric culture. Then Moses says, keep these words on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he promised you, a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kind of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In the future, when your children ask you, what is the meaning of the commandments the Lord our God has given us? Tell them the story of how God saw your misery as slaves and how he came and worked mighty miracles to save you and bring you to this good place. This is important. Many of these rituals are simply to preserve the national memory of what God has done. 
It's a way to pass these memories from generation to generation. They're object lessons. The worship ritual and the festivals set up times for the Israelites to tell these stories to their children. This is hugely important to God. Yay, Sunday school teachers, right? So what are these important things the Lord is teaching on the first day of school? Well, it's the list we know as the Ten Commandments. It's found in Exodus 20, and Moses does a recap in Deuteronomy 6. There's a little more detail in Deuteronomy 6, so that's the version we'll follow today. Exactly how you divide the list up into Ten Commandments can differ from tradition to tradition. We'll use the division common in Judaism. I am the Lord your God. Recognize that phrase? This must be important coming up. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. This is the first and most important thing to remember. It's something to memorize and carry in your heart always. And every single Jew all over the world, generation after generation, has memorized this. It's called the Shema, which means here, the first word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That last word is meod in Hebrew, and it doesn't translate well into English. It's a word that's usually an adjective, not a noun. Here it's usually translated as strength, but as an adjective, which it normally is, it means much or a lot. So as a noun, it means to love God with your exceedingly muchness, with all your abundance, your whole life force. It means to bring it all, bring everything you've got, all that you are, to loving God. Number two, no idols, nothing else and no one else. You must be faithful to me, God says. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For he's talking about the nations around you. For the Lord your God, who is living among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the earth. Do not put the Lord your God to test as you did at Massah. Remember Massah? That was when they didn't trust God to give them water in the desert. God is saying we must trust him and not be tempted to cover our bets by also appealing to other idols we think will give us security, including power, money, or beauty. The Exodus version of this commandment starts the saying, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. But then it has an interesting and confusing addition it says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So this doesn't sound right, does it? I understand he doesn't want us to worship other gods. That makes sense. But it doesn't make sense that God would punish the kids for the sins of the parents. So let's pull out our tools. Let's, let's dig into the Hebrew. The first thing I do is check to see which words are actually there. 
Since Hebrew grammar and syntax are completely different than English, translators always have to rearrange words and add connecting words when they translate into English, and that's often where the problem is. I usually go to BibleHub.com for this sort of research. If you click on the Hebrew option there, they'll show a table for the verse similar to this. That table helps us identify the verbs and the adjectives and the nouns so we can reconstruct the sentence accurately. And you can just hover over, it's all live links, you can hover over the links to see the meaning of the word and all kinds of things. So Hebrew is a fairly blunt language. It doesn't have a lot of nuance. They reuse the same word for lots of different meanings. It's like a kaleidoscope, I think, where you put all the pieces together, but you have to take a step back to get an overall impression of the thought. Then you try to put that into English. That's why we're finding so much wiggle room as we dig into the Hebrew. There's only about six or seven words we need to look up here. And it's exactly like looking them up in a regular dictionary. Easier, really. All we have to do is hover over the link on the Bible Hub screen to see the word's meaning. And we actually already know that first word. L means God, right? The second word was translated as jealous. But now I can see it also means zealous or ardent. This is a God who cares a lot. The next word was translated as punishing. But I remember reading in Deuteronomy 24, 16, that God says parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children to put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. So clearly, that doesn't align with the idea of punishing the children for the sins of the parents. I bet this word, poked, has other meanings. Let's take a look. Poked. To attend to, number, punish, appoint, look after, care for, to pay attention to, observe, to seek, to look about for. Wow, that's quite a range of meanings. This word must be the source of the problem here. When I saw this, I went to my eSword software and looked up how often this word was translated in these different ways. And I found it was translated as to number or to count about 114 times and as punish only 52 times with all the rest of these meanings used less frequently. So in the context of this passage, I think numbering would probably have the connotation of paying careful attention to. And since that's one of the valid meanings, let's use that instead of punishing and see what happens. The next word is translated as sin, and that works, but it can also be translated as depravity, which I think gives a sense of how nuts it is for us to worship any other God besides Yahweh. This next word means fathers. Hebrew usually doesn't include the preposition of. It's always implied when you have two nouns together like this in a row, the depravity and fathers, you have to, they don't have a connector between them. So you have to stick an of in between. So it's depravity of the fathers. The next preposition is a sort of all-purpose one, and it means on, upon, on account of, etc. So let's just use on. And this last word is just the common word for sons. Already, we can see the meaning shaping up. 
God cares a great deal and is paying careful attention to the depravity of idol worshiping fathers. And it looks like this depravity is impacting their sons. The verse goes on to say the impact is to the third and fourth generations of those who hate God, meaning the parents hate God and the impact continues to the third and fourth generations. The third and fourth generations would be the grandkids and the great grandkids. Why that particular range of generations? Well, I bet it's because the span of gen- that's the span of generations that are generally alive simultaneously, right? And in this ancient culture, these families live together as a unit. So maybe God is saying the sins of the parents, idolatry in particular, are affecting everyone living in the family unit. That makes a ton of sense, right? Our sin affects everyone we live with for sure. So we'd say it in English something like this. For I am an intensely caring God, paying careful attention to the impact idol-worshiping parents who hate me have on their grandchildren and great-grandchildren, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me. So remember, anytime you see the words but or and, they are interchangeable in Hebrew, and you have to choose one or the other based on context. So here, let's choose and. This is a huge warning to these parents, as well as a huge encouragement to the families affected by bad parents. God won't stand for us to lead our children astray or mistreat them. God is paying attention and is going to hold those parents responsible while simultaneously showering love on their children. This makes so much more sense. This is the God we've come to know. This verse is quoted a couple more times in Exodus and in Numbers, and both times it can be understood as God holding the parents responsible for the impact they're having on their family and highlighting the love available to the kids and grandkids. How could we get something as basic as one of the Ten Commandments so wrong for so long? How could we attribute the worst of punitive motives to our God, who is always and only loving towards us. There are indeed a couple of times in scripture where innocent kids bear the consequences of a parent's sin, but we'll see that in the extremely rare times this happens, there are reasons that have nothing to do with the child themselves being punished. Honestly, I had to think long and hard after I did this digging into the Hebrew. Dare I say we've been misunderstanding one of the Ten Commandments. I prayed for days over this. After a lifetime of conditioning to believe this terrible view of God, it can be really, really hard to let it go. Finally, the Lord reminded me that one of the ways we know him is that we know ourselves and we are made in his image. What if a mother, let's call her Jean, just a random name. What if Jean loved her only daughter and cared for her deeply and was always kind and supportive of her? But what if the daughter lived with Jean's abusive ex-husband who told lies about Jean, and the daughter grew up believing Jean was cruel and hateful? And then, what if the daughter told these horrible lies to her own children, Jean's grandchildren? 
that would pierce Jean's heart, wouldn't it? And don't you think Jean would go out of her way to prove to her grandchildren that she loved them and cared for them? Do you think there's any way in the world that Jean would despise her grandchildren and slam the door in their faces if they came knocking on her door? No? Well, neither do I. And that's when I felt peace about this translation. I knew instinctively that God would never punish the grandchildren and great-grandchildren for the sins of the parents. But thinking of it in human terms helped me. That can be another helpful tool in your toolbox. Just always realize that God is going to be far more loving than any human would be. The spark of goodness and love in us is always far smaller and dimmer than the flame of holiness and overwhelming mercy and love that is God himself. We've seen in our study that the overwhelming message of God all the way through the Bible is his tenderness towards us and his love for us and how he only wants to bless us. We have to let go of our false image of a hateful and punitive God. Let's do another one. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Most folks think this is God saying not to have a potty mouth, not to use swear words, especially words associated with God's own name. And that's great advice, but that's not what God's getting at here. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now remember that this is specifically directed to a nation God is teaching to be priests in the world. This commandment is talking about the times when you stand in God's place and speak on his behalf. This is for when you say to someone, God says thus and so. What you utter in these circumstances matters a great deal to God. You better be uttering mercy, justice, loving kindness, healing, and truth when you're speaking for God. You better be giving all the power and glory to God, not using God's words or presence or power to accumulate power or glory for yourself. You better not be trying to maintain a status quo that inures to your benefit rather than the benefit of the community. You better not be oppressing others or saying things that will drive them away from God. This is a big, big deal, and it has nothing to do with casual swear words. Number four, keep the Sabbath rest. Remember that even God rested on the seventh day after he finished creation way back in Genesis 2. And remember, when God gave the Israelites manna here in the desert, He gave them a double portion on the sixth day so they could rest on the seventh day. So the command to rest is is more than a command here. It preceded even the Ten Commandments. It's part of our DNA. It has to do with being made in the image of God. And we don't need to be legalistic about it. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath in Mark 2.27. But we do need to pay attention to it and be intentional about it. One day of real rest out of every seven days is vital for our well-being. 
And God specifically ties this to remembering the slavery in Egypt. He tells the Israelites to make sure you rest and all your family rests and all your slaves rest and all your animals rest. All of creation is to rest because the Lord is good and has given us this rest to bless us. Number five, honor your parents. Honor, that word means give weight to your father and your mother. So you may live long and it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So this is another tough one. What about those who have abusive or difficult parents? Parents who do not deserve respect. This command is obviously pretty serious. It's in the top 10 first day of school. And it shows up several more times in scripture. Well, think about how the Israelites are organized. They're organized by tribe, right? The 12 tribes. And that's just another word for clan or family. This society is based 100% on the family unit. They cannot move to another family. That's not how things work in this culture. So if they stay and they're actively fighting against the family unit and the authority of the family leaders, that's a big, big deal. In this command, God is separating the institution of the parent from the person of the parent. We already know that God cares intensely if your parents are abusive and bad. God has already promised to see and take care of that. Here, God is saying that the fight to correct them does not belong to you. You are not responsible for correcting your parents. God will handle that. But in the Israelite culture, where society is based on the family unit, Family members are still obligated to respect the structure that forms the social foundation of the community. They are still obligated to respect the authority of their parents, even if they don't deserve it. Otherwise, the fabric of society will be weakened, and this new nation cannot afford civil strife. It's a case of putting up with it for the greater good of the community. It's hard, but necessary. The next two are pretty obvious and basic. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Here's another obvious one. Do not steal. But it's broader than you might think on the surface. It's talking about more than just burglary. It's also talking about all other kinds of theft. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scales and honest weights. I am the Lord your God. There it is. This is a big deal. These are, this is important. Number nine, do not lie. And this one is huge. Trust is a big deal in God's community. I think it's one of the biggest problems we have in our own community today. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Do not deceive one another. Do not spread false reports. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. He's saying, have courage. Tell the truth. And lastly, 10, do not covet anything that does not belong to you, including your neighbor's wife. This is like do not steal, but it's bigger. God's saying, don't even want to steal. 
These are the words the Lord spoke to the people, the words all of them heard together, when the ram's horn blew and the mountain shook with fire and lightning, and the people begged Moses to tell the Lord to stop talking to them directly. They said, have the Lord talk to you and you talk to us. And the Lord agreed to this, but it saddened the Lord. And he said, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commandments always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Go, Moses, tell them to return to their tents, but you stay here with me so I may give you all the commands, decrees, and laws you're to teach them to follow in the land I'm giving them to possess. After this, it sounds like God kept speaking to Moses alone. There's a whole section of laws listed in Exodus 21 through 23, and a ton more listed in the book of Leviticus, and some scattered around Numbers and Deuteronomy. We can't really tell which parts Moses hears now here at the foot of the mountain, and which part he hears after he goes up on the mountain alone later in the story. But whatever it is that he hears now, it certainly includes the Ten Commandments, which he writes down immediately. This he calls the Book of the Covenant. Then God tells Moses to gather Aaron and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and go worship the Lord with the people watching from a distance. Moses alone, however, is to approach the mountain. So early the next morning, Moses gets up and builds an altar at the foot of the mountain at a safe distance. The altar wouldn't have been this fancy. It would have been as the Lord prescribes, undecorated, plain, using undressed stones. And Moses sets up 12 standing stones to represent each of the tribes of Israel. There, the young men of Israel sacrifice animals and burn them on the altar. Moses takes half the blood and puts it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkles on the altar. So why the emphasis on blood? Well, the Lord says over and over in these books that the life of an animal is in its blood. Blood is a symbol of life, and life is supremely sacred. When an animal is sacrificed, the blood is captured as holy. It represents the life that was given in sacrifice. The idea of burning something completely up is also tied to holiness. God, we've already seen, shows visibly as a consuming fire. No impurity can stand in his presence. Fire burns away all impurity. What's left is holy. So a sacrifice like this is a double emphasis on God's holiness, on the sacred life that belongs to God, and on the solemnity and value God places on whatever is happening in this moment. Moses sprinkles half the blood on the altar itself. The altar obviously can't be burned, so the blood symbolizes purifying it. Then Moses takes the book of the covenant, which he's just written down, and reads it to the people. And they all respond, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Listen. Then Moses takes the blood that's in the bowls and sprinkles it on the people and says, this is the blood, the life of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. It is a solemn ceremony, not unlike our water baptism. This is a renewal of an extension of the covenant ritual God did with Abram way back in Genesis when Abram cut the animals in half and the Lord passed between the halves as a burning torch. Same elements, 
same intent. Moses, Aaron, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders go a little further up the mountain, and they all see the God of Israel. This is remarkable. We skip over this verse. I cannot believe it. God lets them see him. Now, they obviously did not see his face because later in Exodus, Moses is going to ask to see God's face and God will tell him no because it would kill him. But they do see something. Sounds like they see God's feet, the floor of his throne room. Exodus 24, 9 through 11 tells us that under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. And it says God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israel. They saw God and they ate and drank. Isn't that remarkable? This is the first time in the Bible anyone records seeing God's throne room. Mark it in your Bible, Exodus 24, 9 through 11. In a later class, we'll compare it to accounts written by completely different authors hundreds of years later. And the Lord says to Moses, come up to me here on the mountain and stay with me. I will give you tablets of stone with the teaching and commandments I have written to instruct the people. So Moses sets out with Joshua, the young warrior who defeated the Amalekites. And he, he, he takes Joshua up there with him. He leaves her and his brother Aaron in charge. Remember, they were the ones who held up Moses' hands in the battle against the Amalekites. When Moses and Joshua go up the mountain, the cloud of the Lord covers it, and the glory of the Lord settles on Mount Sinai for six days. And on the seventh day, the Lord calls to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites who are watching from afar, the glory of the Lord looks like a ravenous fire on top of the mountain. And Moses alone travels on up to the top, I guess leaving Joshua some distance below. And there Moses stays for 40 days and 40 nights. We'll dig deeper into the Ten Commandments in our breakout sessions today. There's way more to think about than we'll have time for. So scan the list. Let each person pick a question for the group to discuss. Only spend a couple of minutes on each question so you're sure to get to everyone's questions.